Hey there, it's NJ from the future. I've spent most of this past month researching and writing the script and getting it ready for broadcast. As I was about to queue it for release, I discovered that the very first episode of the South African television channel Mnet's new true crime series, Strangers You Know, which came out three days ago, covered this exact case. I've not watched the episode and I have no idea if what they broadcast differs from what you're about to hear, but this is my take on the case, based on my own research and deductions, using press articles and news reports from the time. I can provide a full list of my sources should you require them. As mentioned, at the end of each episode, my scripts are written for entertainment purposes and some specific conversations and characterizations may be invented for dramatic purposes, but they are based on facts taken from court papers or reports in the media at the time of the crime. If I got anything wrong compared to what was broadcast on Sunday, feel free to join the Facebook group and rip me apart if you so desire. I do this because I enjoy it, but I'm not a professional investigative journalist. Now, let's dive into the episode that was supposed to go out before I had to jump in and add this bit. Two things very quickly. Firstly, I want to give a shout out to one of ACMQ's loyal listeners, Jan Bentz. He recently launched his own podcast called Wicked Crime South Africa, which focuses on South African true crime cases that have a witchcraft angle. I've dropped a Spotify link to his podcast in the show notes, and I've linked to the Wicked Crimes Facebook group on the ACMQ group. It's definitely worth checking out. Secondly, today's episode is sponsored by Made Well Love, a non-profit that sells mugs and apparel to raise awareness and funds in support of the LGBTQIA community, and to fight against gender-based violence. In honor of Pride Month, and in keeping with the topic of today's episode, ACMQ is joining forces with Madewell Love to get the word out about their mission and to help raise funds for some worthy causes. More on them in a bit. Also, stick around for info on how you can win in our first ever giveaway. But let's get into today's episode. The Cry Most Queer is an LGBTQ true crime podcast based in Johannesburg, South Africa intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content, including detailed descriptions of violence, physical or sexual assault, injuries to victims, and foul language. If you feel this may trigger you at all, please reconsider listening. If you need to talk to someone, please see our show notes for the contact numbers of crisis helplines around South Africa. Welcome to Crime Most Queer. I'm NJ Hawkeby. So... I finally stepped out of my comfort zone and tackled a case that isn't about white gay men. Truth be told, I've been avoiding this case because I didn't want to say something wrong and insult anybody. To be quite frank, gay white men can be a little... privileged. And I'm very conscious of my privilege. As a gay white man, I don't have to worry about corrective rape, or systemic racism, or misogyny. We have life pretty fucking easy. But stories like today's need to be told. Perhaps I'm not the best person to be telling it, but I am eternally grateful to Calvin Swart, ACMQ's merch manager, and my sister, Janine McLean, ACMQ's executive producer, for their invaluable help in getting this story out there, even if it is from a man's perspective. Another reason for holding off on this case was because of how much it pissed me off. I've dealt with a lot of murder over the course of this podcast, but this was, to me, the most senseless. 
They were killed for no good reason. Not that there is a good reason to kill, but I'm sure you get my meaning. This had nothing to do with their sexuality. This wasn't a hate crime. This was just... Wait. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Let's unpack the story as best we can. Because that's the other issue I had with this case. I've often complained that the victims of crime become a footnote in their own murders, but this has never been as true as with this case. I worked my way through 63 news articles in my research for this case, and I got to learn exactly five things about the victims, not directly related to the case. 63 articles, and I barely had enough backstory to fill a chappie's wrapper. I even tried contacting the siblings of our victims, but they never got back to me. So the format for this episode is going to be a little different. Normally, I start with a bang, the discovery of the body. That's a little difficult with this one, but we'll get into that too. Let's work through it chronologically and see where we end up. And get comfortable. It's a long one. Once upon a time. Okay, so once upon a time probably sounded a bit condescending. This is no fairy tale, but it should have been. It had all the makings of the perfect love story, with a 21st century twist, of course. Prince Charming didn't come with dangly bits, but she still managed to sweep the princess off her feet. I would love to be able to give you more information on our victims, but I've already bitched about the lack thereof. And this is the sum total. Joey Erasmus was born in 1985. Gesine Anisha Sophie Fenikark was born in 1987. Exact dates? Dunno. Where? Dunno that either. Joey's Facebook profile claims that she was originally from Rustenburg, but who knows? Anisha's profile didn't even share that info. Joey had two siblings, a sister named Rina and a brother named Lawrence. And as far as I can make out, both of them live in Pretoria, or at least they did back in December 2017. I'm not sure what Joey did for a living, but I presume she wasn't a housewife. Anisha was also one of three, and even though she was the only girl, she was extremely close to her brothers, Vainant and Skulk. She worked for Anglo Platinum, but what exactly she did is unclear, and at some point she bought a farm in Moinoy, about an hour's drive west of Pretoria. When Joey and Anisha got married on November the 5th, 2014, Joey took Anisha's surname, and as far as I can make out, they were welcomed with open arms into each other's families. See? Told you. It had all the makings of a happily ever after queer-themed fairy tale. But little did anybody know that the big bad wolf was lurking in the woods, and Joey and Anisha weren't his first victims. In 2013, Amanda May had a pretty good life. She owned a small holding near Kruendal on the outskirts of Rustenburg, and she was in a healthy four-year-long relationship with George Janser van Rensburg, and they planned to marry. She also got on well with her tenants, Natasha Kutsia, who rented a cottage on the small holding, and Kurs Sredom, who ran a scrapyard from the property. At one point, Kurs approached Amanda, or Mundi as she was known to her friends, with an offer to buy half the small holding, 
Mundy agreed, saying that they could get the ball rolling, but she wanted to focus on her wedding first. Chris said he understood perfectly, but suggested that they take out life insurance policies in case anything should happen to either one of them. Mundy and George got married in February 2014 and were settling into their life together, when, on June 24th of that year, Mundy was attacked on the farm while George was at work. She didn't survive. The police investigation, led by Warrant Officer Yanni van der Walt, led to the arrest of James Sitole, a Mozambican national, but they couldn't get the case against him to stick, and he was released. It was revealed in the press that James worked for Quirce at the scrapyard. Natasha, fearing for her life, fled to another province, but kept in contact with the police to assist with the investigation. Until she didn't. Whatever happened to Natasha is unclear, but she completely dropped off the radar, and it appeared that Mundy's murder would go unresolved. The insurance policy against Mundy's life paid out to Kurs to the tune of 1.8 million rand, and George never doubted for a second that Kurs was behind Mundy's death. Let's skip ahead a couple of years and bounce over to Moinoy, a little mining town roughly halfway between Brits and Rustenburg in the northwest province of South Africa. Kurs had bought himself a small holding of his own on one side of town, and, in an uncomfortably similar setup to what he had previously going in Kroendal, he rented a workshop from 32-year-old Joey and 30-year-old Anisha Fenikak, located on their farm on the other side of town. From this workshop, Kurs and his wife Mercia ran a panel-beating business, employing Kurt's son Vincent and Aaron James Sitole, the same James Sitole who had been arrested for Mundy May's murder and then released. There is shamefully little information on the lives of any of the people involved before November 2017, so giving you their backstory is all but impossible. Given that, let's jump straight into the sequence of events, shall we? Joey and Anisha appeared to get on well with Kurs and his staff, and the woman would often stop in at the workshop for a chat or get Kurs to help him out with the horses. Kurs would later say that he counted the Fenikaks as good friends and that they had, quote, a very good relationship, end quote. Somewhere around November 2017, Kurs approached Anisha about purchasing the farm. Sound familiar? Initially, Anisha said she wasn't interested in selling, but Kurs gently pushed her until she gave him a price, 2 million rand. This was more than Kurs had to spend, and he bitched about it later to his family, saying that the only way he would be able to get his hands on the farm would be to take out Joey and Anisha. His son Vincent and Vincent's fiancé Marushka laughed it off, thinking he was joking. But was he? Was he really? In early December, Joey received a call telling her that her father had passed away. Due to work and other commitments, she and Anisha were unable to travel through to Pretoria just then, but they opened their home up to Joey's family and said that they were welcome to come through to Moinoy and they could make plans for the funeral there. The idea was then for Joey and Anisha to join the family in Pretoria the following Monday to finalise the arrangements and to attend the funeral. Anisha placed calls to her brothers, letting them know that Joey's father had died and that they would be in Pretoria the following week. 
She also mentioned to both of them that Chris had floated the idea of buying the farm. According to Vaynant, Anisha wasn't interested. Skulk, however, got the impression that a sale wasn't entirely off the table, but it would have to wait until after the funeral. Either way, Anisha had other more important matters to deal with, like being there for her wife in her time of grief. Meanwhile, across town, Chris and Mercia were hatching plans of their own. Mercia told Marushka to go into town and buy strong cable ties and adhesive tape, and Chris enlisted James's help to find a few guys for what he called piecework. James got in touch with Nelson Malate. He refused to go into detail over the phone, but told him to come to the workshop and to bring people he could trust. A few days later, Nelson arrived with two other men, Moses Rabuku and a man known only as Elliot. Chris explained that he had run into a spot to bother with some business associates, that he was unable to pay them what they wanted, and that he wanted them kidnapped. He said that Mercer would provide the men with uniforms, and pointing out the Finnecags' home, told them that they were to knock on the door of the house and pose as employees of ESCOM, South Africa's power utility. However, when Nelson learned that they would have to kidnap the woman during the day, he insisted on being provided with a gun. Chris agreed. Next, they moved on to the sordid topic of coin. Chris opened the negotiations. 15,000. Nelson scoffed. 100,000. Chris laughed. 25. Nelson shook his head. 50. Chris nodded. Fine. 50,000. And stuck out his hand. Nelson took his hand, looked Chris in the eye and said, 15,000 up front. Cash. Again, Chris nodded and said he would send James with the money the following day. Lastly, Nelson needed to know what to do with the woman once they had been taken. Kurz told Nelson to load them into their car and call her once they had left the farm. Kurz would let them know where to meet him and he would bring the rest of the money. On Saturday morning, December the 9th, Kurz and company kept away from the workshop while Nelson, Moses and Elliot donned the ESCOM uniforms that Mercia had bought them and walked to Joey and Anisha's farm. But when they arrived, they found the farm to be a hive of activity. Unbeknownst to them, Joey's family had arrived to work on funeral arrangements for Joey's father. The three men contemplated whether or not to go ahead with the kidnapping. Elliot lost his nerve and pulled out. Nelson backed out next. But when Moses said that they needed to do it because they were being paid to complete the job, Nelson shoved the gun into Moses' hand and said that Moses was welcome to go ahead, but he was doing it alone. Realising that he couldn't do it alone, Moses headed home. When Chris hadn't heard from Nelson, he began calling. Nelson ignored the calls and Chris left voicemail after voicemail, demanding to know when Nelson and his crew would carry out the job. Eventually, Nelson sent a message saying that they wouldn't be able to complete the job. Chris said that Nelson should come to his house and return the money and the gun. But Nelson didn't trust Chris, even slightly, and believed that if he went to the Stradorm's farm, he wouldn't leave there alive. He told Chris that Moses had the gun, and Chris mustn't contact him again. Chris then got hold of Moses and arranged for Mercer to collect the gun, which she did that evening. Chris then took a walk over to James's quarters on the property and told him that James would have to nab the woman himself the following day. Chris asked if James had anybody he trusted that he could call on to assist, and James said he did. 
his brother, Jack. Chris headed back to the homestead and found Vincent and Marushka in the kitchen, making dinner. He called Vincent into his bedroom and explained what would happen the next day, saying that Vincent would have to run things at the workshop for the next few days while they worked their way through the fallout. Vincent was shocked and tried to talk his father out of it, but there was no change in Chris's mind. When Vincent told Marushka, she too tried to convince Chris not to go through with the plan, again to no avail. The next morning, Jack arrived at the Stradorms farm and the brothers headed up to the main house. There, Chris handed James the gun and Jack a punga, and the three men climbed into Chris's car. The plan was that Chris would make himself scarce for a few hours until the deed was done. About a kilometre from the Finikirk's farm, Chris pulled the car over to the side of the road and the Satoli brothers climbed out. They would walk the rest of the way and Chris drove off into the distance. Right, so before I get into what actually happened that day, I want to chat about today's sponsor. Madewell Love is a Johannesburg-based non-profit that sells mugs, t-shirts and hoodies emblazoned with powerful phrases aimed at starting important conversations, raising awareness and helping in the fight against discrimination, inequality, violence, hate crimes and injustice. The profits from each item sold are donated to organizations that support victims of gender-based violence and the LGBTQ community. But they aim to expand their range of merch and the organizations they support to include environmental issues and mental health stigma. Their items are very reasonably priced, starting at 100 Rand for the mugs and going up to 400 Rand for their Rainbow Pride hoodies. They ship anywhere in South Africa, with all profits going to some very worthy causes. You can find Made Well Love on Facebook by searching for Made Well Love, that's M-A-I-D-W-E-L-L, love, or by browsing to facebook.com forward slash made by Madewell. You'll find a link down in the show notes. However, that's not all. Justine at Made Well Love has generously donated a Pride Edition Love Wins mug to ACMQ that we are giving away to one lucky listener. So, to get your hands on this awesome prize, all you need to do is, first, head over to Instagram and make sure you're following ACMQ Podcast. You'll find a link in the show notes to that too. Next, locate the giveaway post in our feed and tag three friends in the comments. Finally, share the competition post far and wide across all your social media. Once you've done all of this, sit back, relax, and maybe revisit some of our old episodes while you wait to hear if you are a winner. The competition closes at 1 second to midnight on Sunday, July the 11th, 2021. And the winners will be announced on Instagram at 5pm on Monday, July the 12th. So, if you want to win yourself a quality pride mug and maybe find out a bit more about Madewell Love, head over to Instagram now. Okay, let's get back to the story. But be warned, this is where things start getting gruesome. As James and Jack approached the driveway of the Finnecax farm, two cars drove down from the main house and out onto the road. The brothers dived into the long grass on the verge and waited. 
They couldn't be certain that their intended targets were in either of the vehicles, but if they weren't, they didn't need the occupants alerting Joey and Anisha to two men lurking at the bottom of their driveway, especially with one of them armed with a fuck-off big knife. It was better just to hide. When the cars were out of sight, James and Jack emerged from their hiding place and jumped over the fence, heading up towards the house. As they got closer, they saw that they were in luck. The women were home, and they didn't appear to have been warned about the Satoles. Keeping to the shadows of trees, shrubs and buildings, the brothers skittered up to the house. A Nissan X-Trail SUV was parked in the driveway. The front door of the house stood wide open, and music blared from inside. The brothers could hear the women hollering to each other from different rooms as they discussed what they should take with them to Pretoria the next day. James drew the gun, confirmed that it was loaded, glanced over to Jack, who signaled that he was ready, and they rushed towards the open door. James entered first, the firearm held at eye height, and encountered Joey in the lounge. Seeing the gun trained on her, she gave a short, sharp scream. It was involuntary, and she silenced herself mid-scream so as not to possibly antagonize her attackers, but the scream was enough to alert Anisha, who ran down the passage and into the lounge, coming face to face with James and the barrel of the gun. James waved Anisha over to Joey, who was being guarded by Jack, machete in hand. Anisha pleaded with the men to take whatever they wanted, but James just smiled. They weren't here to rob the place. The women were wanted elsewhere. Pressing the gun to the back of Joey's head, James told Anisha to get her car keys and not try anything funny, or Joey would die. Anisha did as she was told. The men then each grabbed one of the women by the neck and dragged them out of the house and towards the car. Anisha was told to drive with Joey riding shotgun. The brothers climbed into the back seat and James kept the gun pointed at Joey. One wrong turn, one brave move, he told Anisha, and Joey was dead. Anisha followed their instructions to the letter. When they arrived at the Stradoms, they discovered that Mersha had collected Moses and brought him to the farm. As planned, Kuss was nowhere to be seen. Moses watched as Anisha brought the SUV to a halt, and the brothers instructed the woman to get out. James then grabbed Anisha roughly by the neck and dragged her towards the house. Jack grabbed Joey, similarly roughly, and dragged her into an old shipping container behind the house. Here's that graphic content warning you've been expecting. I'm about to get pretty detailed, and especially if you were friends or family of the victims, you may not want to hear this. Listener discretion is most definitely advised. Inside the house, Anisha was dragged into the lounge where James bound her hands with a cable tie and pushed her back onto the couch. Through the half-open doorway, Mersha watched, expressionless. When Moses appeared next to her, she thrust a stack of papers into his hand and told him that Anisha had to initial each page and sign the last one. Do whatever's necessary to get it done. Moses entered the room and handed the pages to James and whispered Mersha's instructions into James's ear. James tossed the agreement onto the coffee table, telling Anisha what she had to do. Anisha glanced down at the top page, saw what it was, and offered to purchase for her farm, and responded with, Fuck you. James backhanded her and she fell over onto the couch. She lifted herself up and glared from James to Moses. James tried again. Again, he was met with profanity. So he decided to change tack. If violence wouldn't work, maybe humiliation would. 
Hauling Anisha to her feet, James ripped her t-shirt from her body. Anisha tried to cover her dignity as best she could while not taking her eyes off James. Again he told her to sign. Again she refused. James struck her again, this time knocking her to the floor. All the while, Moses watched in horror, too terrified to intervene, not sure what Chris and Mercer would do if he tried to stop the assault. James pounced on Anisha, and the look in her eyes told Moses that she knew exactly what was coming next. If violence and humiliation wouldn't work, sexual assault just might. James ripped her trousers down, climbed on top of her, and raped her. Eventually, Moses couldn't take it anymore and turned to leave. James watched him as he walked away, and as he reached the doorway, James called after him, Go check on Jack. Moses paused briefly, contemplating looking back, then decided against it, and left the lounge. He saw Mercia standing out of sight of Anisha, although watching intently through a crack in the door, but said nothing as he passed her on his way through the house towards the kitchen, the back door, and the backyard beyond. James was still raping Anisha when Vincent and Marushka emerged from their bedroom where they had taken refuge to avoid involvement. Mercia called them over and handed Anisha's keys to Vincent, telling him to go to the Finnecax's farm and make sure that the house was locked up. It had to look undisturbed. Attracting unwanted attention would be unfortunate. If anybody asked, they were there to get something in the workshop. While Vincent spoke to Mercia, Marushka glanced through the lounge door and immediately wished that she hadn't. She didn't want to see a woman being raped, and for the briefest of moments thought of trying to stop it. But suddenly she was scared. What happens if they decided that that meant she was disloyal? What if disloyalty meant that she was next? She moved closer to Vincent, hoping that he would protect her from his family should the need arise, just in time to hear him say, Let's go. It used every last grain of her self-control not to sprint to Vincent's car. As Moses approached the shipping container, it didn't take much imagination to work out what exactly he was most likely to see when he walked inside, but it was still somehow worse. Joey's hands had been cable-tied, and the loop of the plastic tie was hung over a meat hook in the ceiling. She was completely naked, her torn clothes strewn haphazardly around the structure, and Jack was raping her. As Moses entered, Jack looked at him, and without breaking his stride, like it was just another Tuesday, asked after his brother. Moses said he was trying to make Anisha sign. Jack said nothing, just nodded, as if he knew exactly what required signing, and he carried on violating Joey. And then, for some reason, as Moses was about to turn and exit the container, Jack seemed to abandon his assault on Joey. An instant later, a naked Anisha was shoved through the doorway, and James appeared behind her, with the papers in hand. Moses knew exactly what the new plan was, use Joey to get Anisha to sign. Jack would rape both women a second time, first Anisha, and then Joey. Moses didn't feel that he had the constitution to witness it all a second time, and he returned to the house. As Joey was being raped, James made sure that Anisha watched. Then Jack placed the muzzle of the gun against Joey's head. Eventually, Anisha caved in and signed the document. The woman also revealed the PIN codes of their bank cards, which Jack wrote down on a piece of cardboard. With the agreement signed, all Anisha wanted to do was go to her wife, place her arms around her and assure her that, no matter what happened, everything would be fine. 
but she couldn't. She was powerless, unable to move. James took out his phone and stepped out of the container. His voice could be heard, but the words were indecipherable. When he returned, the brothers exchanged a look. James gave a curt nod of his head, and the two men got to work with the next phase of the plan. Without a word between them, James and Jack placed rope nooses around the two women's necks and strung them up, facing each other from their respective meat hooks. Anisha felt her feet leave the ground and her lungs denied air, but then the noose was loosened ever so slightly, just enough to get her toes on the ground, and she realized that James was toying with his prey. Like a snake, he was playing with his food, prolonging her death for as long as possible. She also realized that he was going to make her watch Joey die. Tears streamed down her face as she watched the woman she loved, gasping for breath, before finally convulsing and falling quiet. In that moment, Anisha accepted that all hope was indeed lost. She became aware of the ache in her thighs from holding herself up on her toes, and she let her knees bend. She felt the noose restrict her airway, tried to ignore the burning in her chest as her lungs cried out for air, and became aware of the edges of her vision beginning to dim. She knew she was dying, and she put her faith in her belief that she would see Joey again in the hereafter. She was unconscious by the time the convulsions started, but she soon fell still. Joey and Anisha Finikak were gone. As I said at the start, this had fuck all to do with the fact that Joey and Anisha were lesbian. This was not a hate crime. This was greed, plain and simple. They died because this self-entitled cuntfuck decided that he could just take whatever the fuck he wanted. After all, he'd gotten away with it before. Why not add a couple more bodies to his scorecard? The Satole brothers waited until they were certain that the women were dead, before they lowered the bodies to the floor removed their jewellery, their rings and watches which they gave to Mercia, and rolled each one in old rugs. James took out his phone again and placed another call, this time to one of his friends, Alex Modal, telling him to come to the Stratum's farm because he had a job for him. Then the brothers carried each body down to the stream that ran through the farm. When Chris arrived home, he went in search of James, but found Jack instead. Jack told him that James was talking to Alex, because James had an errand he wanted Alex to run for him, but he, Jack, would show Kurs the bodies, and he led the older man off to the stream. Meanwhile, James handed Joey's bank card to Alex, and told him to draw 3,000 rand, about $250 today, and then go shopping, making sure to swipe the card for any purchases. Alex did as he was told, drawing the cash from an ATM at a nearby shopping centre, and then buying groceries elsewhere. Down at the stream, Kuss was furious. Why had the bodies not been properly disposed of? He instructed the brothers to place the body into dustbins. He then poured swimming pool acid and petrol over them and set them alight. They added wood kindling and trash to bolster the blaze, and once the bodies were nothing but charred bones and ash, the remains were removed. The larger pieces broken into smaller fragments, and everything was placed into a black refuse bag. By this stage, Vincent and Marushka had returned from the Fenikak's farm, and Kursp handed Vincent the bag of bones and the keys to Alicia's X-Trail. They needed to get rid of the car, he said, 
but first Vincent needed to dump the bones. When asked where, Quirst told them to go back to the stream and leave them where the Satorlis had initially dumped the bodies. He also said that they should swing by the workshop and take one of their clients' cars so they could get back home after the extra was no more. Vincent, Marushka and Moses set off at around midnight to do as instructed. On a quiet road outside Michalisburg, about an hour's drive south of Moinoy, Vincent pulled the Nissan off onto the verge and they set the vehicle alight. They hung around just long enough to watch that it burnt beyond recognition before making their way back to Moinoy in silence. None of them could pin down exactly how they felt about the events of Sunday, December the 10th, 2017, but they each knew, in their silence, that none of it sat right. That Monday, the 11th, Quist drove the client's car that Vincent had used the night before back to the workshop. Vincent and Mercia joined him a little later. After all, they needed to keep up appearances. The workshop couldn't be seen closed or understaffed less than a day after Joey and Anisha went missing. Wise move, too, because in Pretoria, Joey's family had started to worry. When the woman didn't show up at the funeral parlour after having been unreachable the night before, Joey's siblings knew that something wasn't right. Rina Payne, Joey's sister, contacted Anisha's brothers to find out if either of them had heard from Joey or Anisha. They had not, and Rina's husband, Kurvis, offered to drive through to Moinoy and check up on them. Anisha's brother, Skulk, said he would meet him there. When Kurvis arrived, the first thing that struck him was the silence. The farm was never quiet. There was always something happening. Voices, music, the radio, the TV, goings-on were always going on, and the silence set his teeth on edge. The property wasn't entirely devoid of activity, though. From the workshop, the sound of metalwork rang out. Corbis didn't feel up to entering the house alone, so he decided to ask around at the workshop while he waited for Skulk to arrive. As he approached, Chris walked out and met him on the driveway. Corbis introduced himself as Joey's brother-in-law and said that the woman hadn't pitched up at the funeral home that morning. Chris responded by telling Corbis that he had bought the farm the day before for one million rand, which he had paid in cash, and that the woman had left shortly afterwards. Corbis thought it odd that Chris had opened his side of the conversation with they sold me the farm, when Chris had started with they're missing. Chris then said that he was also looking for them because he needed to get the document they had signed saying that the farm had been sold to his lawyers to officiate. Well, that explained the reason for leading with the sale of the farm, Corbus figured. There was unfinished business between them. But then Chris said he had seen the woman again after they had left the farm. Anisha had apparently called from a number Chris didn't recognize and asked him to bring their mobile phones, which they had left in the house. Chris said that he let himself in, grabbed the phones and took them to a service station about four kilometers away, where he found the woman sitting in a strange bucky with two other women he had never seen before. Once he handed over the phones, he went on his way. But something didn't add up to Corbus. Firstly, how had Chris let himself into Joey and Anisha's house? Oh, they'd left the keys with him, he said, and told him to keep an eye on the place. All sorts of alarm bells went off in Corbus's head. He knew his sisters-in-law. There was no way in hell they would have left the keys with anyone other than one particular person. They didn't have trust issues per se, but they had a friend nearby who always looked after the place when Joey and Anisha went away for extended periods. 
Why would they change things up? They had plenty of time to make arrangements with his friend. And they would have mentioned something if the woman was unavailable to assist. It just... It, it didn't make sense. Kubis asked where the keys had gotten to. Chris went back into the workshop, grabbed the bunch, and handed them to Kubis. To his relief, Kubis heard a car driving up the driveway. Skulk had arrived. Kubis excused himself and headed back to the house, reaching the front yard as Skulk came to a stop. Skulk is a big guy, which can be a bit intimidating, but his warm smile and friendly face will instantly put you at ease. But he wasn't feeling very friendly that day, and his trademark infectious smile was noticeably lacking. His main focus was on finding his sister, and no smiles were exchanged as he shook Kubis's hand. In fact, as Kobus related what Chris had told him, his expression barely changed, save for a raising of a single eyebrow when Kobus showed him Anisha's house keys and said he got them from Chris. Feeling that he had delayed entering the house for as long as he possibly could, Kobus suggested that they head inside and see what they could see. They unlocked the door and slowly walked into the home. There was no sounds of a break-in or a struggle. They specifically looked out for that. Everything seemed perfectly in order, until they spotted Joey's handbag and Anisha's mobile phone. Wait, hadn't Chris said he had taken their phones to them? They checked the rest of the house and found the woman's toothbrushes still in the bathroom, travel luggage on the bed half-packed and shoes on the floor, clearly waiting to be loaded into the suitcase. They'd been packing for their trip to Pretoria, but clearly hadn't finished. They'd been interrupted, perhaps taken. But then why was the house locked? And why was nothing missing? Skulk decided to have a turn at questioning Chris, while Kurbis contacted the police to report his sisters-in-law missing. When asked about Anisha's phone still being in the house, Chris changed his tune and said he'd only taken one phone to the woman. This didn't gel with what he had told Kurbis. In fact, the longer Skulk spoke to him, the more Chris embellished or outright changed his story. When the police showed up, they initially thought Chris would be able to shed some light on the woman's whereabouts. After all, he had been the last person to see them alive, so he claimed, but Kurbis and Skulk shared their doubts with investigators, and soon the cops began to have doubts of their own. While Kurs was keeping the police busy, Mersha placed the call to Marushka out of earshot, telling her to get rid of the jewellery and watches they had taken off the bodies the night before. The cops were getting a little too inquisitive, and nobody needed them stumbling across anything incriminating. Paranoid much? Damn right, and not unwise either. The cops on this case weren't sitting on their hands, and seemed pretty good at spotting bullshit at a hundred paces. Elsewhere, Joey and Anisha's bank cards were still being used by Alex and James. More purchases were swiped for, and James drew 800 rand out of Anisha's account on the 11th. Thousands of rands were stolen from their bank accounts, but this would only come to light much later in the investigation. Later that evening, police obtained a search warrant for the workshop, but the search there proved fruitless. The following day, the 12th, only Vincent went to work. Mersha and Chris stayed home to coordinate the cleanup effort. The search warrant had spooked them, and cleaning up was an all-hands operation. Mersha went into town with one of the farm labourers to buy more pool acid, four bottles in total. When they returned, Chris instructed that the container be scrubbed down with pool acid and vinegar. He didn't say why this had to be done, but Mersha later said that they needed to get rid of an unpleasant smell. 
Chris also instructed that a well behind the house be cleaned out. When asked what happened there, Chris said that James had previously killed a black woman and dumped her body in the well. While Chris was supervising, one of his workers came over to him. He'd been down at the stream and noticed something strange. There appeared to be a bag of bones there. Chris said that he would handle it and phone Vincent, telling him that he must get rid of the bones, that they can't be found on the property. Vincent immediately left work to handle it. Once the bones had been moved, Chris sent one of the workers down to the stream to make sure that the area was clean and unincriminating, although I doubt he used those exact words. Vincent drove out along the R104, the old main road between Pretoria and Rustenburg that had largely fallen out of use since the opening of the N4 highway, and he upended the bag of bones into a thicket next to the road in nearby Buffelsontein. That afternoon, while the cleanup was still ongoing, police arrived and served a search warrant for the Stradham's farm, where they, quote, made certain discoveries, end quote. They also started questioning staff, and one in particular was especially chatty, the guy who had cleaned the container, the well, and the stream. The following day, the 13th, the axes began to fall. Chris Stradham was arrested in the parking lot of Moinoy Spa. Over the next few hours and into the following morning, James Satole, Jack Satole, and Alex Madau were arrested at their respective homes in Majakaneng, a township on the outskirts of Brits. On December 15th, Chris, James, and Jack made their first appearance in the Brits Magistrates' Court. They were charged with murder, kidnapping, robbery, and unlawful possession of a firearm and ammunition. The case was postponed until December the 22nd. Meanwhile, police were pulling the Stradham's farm apart, searching for any sign of the woman, or at least their bodies. They didn't find any bodies, but they found enough to build a case, including weathered bones down at the stream. Then, the following day, the 16th, the burnt-out husk of a vehicle was found near Michalisburg. It was identified as the Nissan X-Trail belonging to Anisha Fenikak. On the 18th, Alex made his first court appearance. His case was also postponed until the 22nd, so that he could appear alongside his co-accused. On the morning of the 22nd, the newspapers ran a story that the bodies of Joey and Anisha Fenikark had been found. After the court appearance of the four co-accused, police issued a statement claiming this to be false. They were, however, so they said, following leads that they hoped would aid in locating the bodies of the two women. That same day, Moses Rabuku was arrested in Majakaneng. He appeared in court on the 27th, and his case was postponed until January the 5th with the rest of the accused. While in custody, Moses was taken to various places of interest and asked to point out the different crime scenes, which he did. He also told them to search along the R104 in the Buffalsontain area, and a police search began in earnest. Eventually, in a patch of grass, they uncovered a pile of bone fragments, including part of a crushed skull, what looked like a tooth crown, and a hip socket that still had flesh attached to it. The bones were sent for DNA analysis to establish whether they belonged to Joey and Anisha. Then on the 29th, police arrived at the home of one of Marushka's relatives, where they took Vincent and Marushka in for questioning. The following day, they were both formally arrested, bringing the number of accused to seven, and as with the other accused, 
Their case was postponed until January the 5th. The day before the co-accused were due to appear in court, the Freiheitsfront Plus, also known as the Freedom Front Plus, or simply the VF Plus, the largest Afrikaner political party, declared January the 5th, 2018 as Black Friday and called on the public to wear black to show their support for Joey and Anisha Fenikark and their families. Elsa Lawrence of the Brits branch of the VF Plus also called for bail to be denied. The following morning, the seven appeared in the Brits Magistrates Court where defeating the ends of justice was added to the list of charges they were already facing. In the public gallery, people wore black t-shirts emblazoned with the question, Var is Joey and Anisha? Which translates to, Where are Joey and Anisha? Written in bold, frozen orange text. The case was postponed to January the 10th for further investigation and to finalise legal aid representation for some of the accused, who were all remanded in custody. After the proceedings, Vainan Fanikark, Anisha's brother, and Lawrence Erasmus, Joey's brother, spoke to SABC News. We go through a range of emotions, being sad, being worried. Uh, oftentimes, you're not able to sleep at night, uh, sick of worries. If we can just know what happened to them, if we can see something, we can have closure. Because now we're only worrying, we're stressing, and we don't know what's going on. When court resumed on the 10th, rape charges were brought against the co-accused. The case was postponed to allow the Satoli brothers' lawyer to familiarise himself with the case, as he had been appointed only that morning. Police also confirmed that Mercer was wanted for questioning, saying that, while she was not a suspect, she might have vital information about Joey and Anisha's disappearance. Shortly afterwards, the Fenikark and Erasmus families announced that they were offering a 5,000 rand reward for any information that led to her arrest. The following day, Mercia turned herself into the police, where she was questioned and subsequently arrested. A day later, she too appeared in the Brits Magistrates Court, and her case was postponed until the 15th, where she would appear alongside the rest of the accused. At long last, in Court C at the Brits Magistrates Court, the bail hearings for the eight accused began with Magistrate Simakaleng Tamaj presiding. In the dock, 53-year-old Jakobus Pietrus Stradom, known as Kuis, his wife, 21-year-old Mercia Whitney Stradom, Kuis's son, 29-year-old Vincent Stradom, Vincent's fiance, 18-year-old Mariska Oppermann, Kuis's Mozambican employee, 23-year-old Aaron James Satole, James's brother, Jack Chikinya Satole, and two associates of James, Alex Madal and Moses Rabuku, faced charges of murder, kidnapping, housebreaking, robbery with aggravating circumstances, unlawful possession of a firearm, unlawful possession of ammunition, defeating the ends of justice, and rape. But first, the bail hearings. And it was here that Joey and Anisha's friends and family heard of the many upsetting discoveries made by investigators. In the public gallery, supporters had updated their t-shirts, which now read Gerechtigheid for Joey and Anisha, or Justice for Joey and Anisha. First in the witness box was Kurbus Payne, Joey's brother-in-law. He recalled how after the family hadn't seen or heard from the couple in over 24 hours, he had driven to Moinoy to check on them, and had been the first to arrive. He said the farm was eerily quiet when he got there, which was out of character. Ordinarily, the TV would be playing, the aircons would be on, 
and talking and laughing would ring out of the rustic-looking farmhouse. But not that day. When Skald Fenikak, Anisha's brother, testified, he agreed with Kurbis, saying that the stillness of the farm was so unsettling because it was so unusual. He said that even though, at first glance, the house seemed in order, doors locked and no signs of a break-in, the sight of Anisha's phone, Joey's handbag, and their toothbrushes was a strong indicator that things were far from right. Then, the first accused, James Sitole, entered the witness box. Speaking of his arrest in December 2017, he said that at 3am on December the 14th, police arrived at his home which he shared with his girlfriend who was pregnant with his child and her three children from a previous relationship, and arrested him while he was drunk. He then accused the police of trying to torture a confession out of him over the course of two weeks. Injuries he allegedly incurred included a slashed left wrist, which was later treated with four stitches, and a broken pinky finger that had been smashed with a hammer. He also claimed to not be a flight risk because he didn't own a passport and had never left the country. But according to multiple news sources, James and his brother Jack were Mozambican nationals, and I'm not entirely sure where the confusion came from. Did the papers get it wrong? And he's actually South African? Did he enter the country illegally? Which, without porous borders, is quite possible. Or did he just outright lie about not being able to flee the country should he get bail? I'm leaning heavily to option three here, because a dishonest murder accused is far from a shocker. But let's move on. During cross-examination, state prosecutor Christine Molazzi questioned James about previous arrests, specifically his arrest in 2014 in connection with the murder of Monday May, and James said that the case had been withdrawn. When asked if he was aware that the murder also involved a white woman murdered on a farm, James said that he only heard stories during the rounds, but didn't know who the victim was. Next, accused number two, Chris Stradum, was called to the witness box. He was led in his testimony by his lawyer, Poncho Rakane, and claimed that he had a, quote, very good relationship, end quote, with Joey and Anisha. He also stated that, in his opinion, the three of them were good friends, quote, end quote. He told the court that they would often visit him in his workshop and he would sometimes lend a hand with the horses. He also professed to have no clue as to why anybody would possibly want them dead. During his testimony, he too, like James, accused the police of assault and torture to extract a confession. According to Chris, he was struck on his nose, ribs and right ear, the left side of his face was bruised and his left index finger was broken after police officers allegedly slapped, kicked and hit him. He also claimed that he was hit with a pipe-like object and that he urinated blood for two weeks after the attack due to damage to his ribs. When he was finally taken to the hospital to have his injuries attended to, he claimed, the doctor said he could not help him because his left index finger had been broken for about five weeks. He said he had tried to lay a complaint with the station commander and with the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, or IPID, but both complaints had gone largely ignored. There is no question, when looking at photos of Kurs in court, that he had taken a severe thrashing. But whether this was at the hands of the police or not is up for debate. Kurs was certainly sociopathic enough, or is that psychotic enough, to have struck a deal with a fellow inmate to assault him so that he could pin it on the police. He was also asked about previous cases against him and testified that he hadn't been convicted in all but one of them, where, in that case, 
he was ordered to pay a 1,500 rand fine for failing to correctly fill in the registry of second-hand goods. Other than that, he claimed, he had never fallen foul of the law. Proceedings were then adjourned to the following day, when Kuss was to be cross-examined by Prosecutor Mulazzi. But the following morning, a very different Kuss took to the witness box. He claimed to be confused by the proceedings and even said that he wasn't sure who it was he was supposed to have murdered. But later, when asked by prosecutors who the deceased were, he correctly answered Anisha and her wife. Mulazzi then moved on to Kurs's official complaint of police brutality while in custody, sent by his lawyers to IPED, and questioned him on some of the glaring errors, such as the incorrect date of his arrest. He claimed he was extremely stressed and worried about his children, saying that he was still trying to figure it all out. She also questioned him about the circumstances surrounding his arrest, and, true to form, Kurs soon began embellishing his story. He claimed that he was beaten on three separate occasions, and that the first beating took place on the day of his arrest at Moinoy Spa. Mulazzi asked if he thought the police would take him to a public place to assault him, and he responded, quote, Yes, because no one would be able to see. End quote. Yeah. I'm as confused by that answer as you are. Chris then added that there were multiple security cameras around Spa, and he had told the colonel that he would be demanding the security surveillance footage from Spa once he was released. When the prosecutor asked him if he had mentioned this to his lawyer, Kurs said that he had not. When asked why the police assaulted him, Kurs replied that they told him they were Mugh for my cock, which translates to being tired of his shit. Eventually, in exasperation, Mulazzi accused someone, either Kurs or his lawyer, of trying to confuse the court and demanded to know which of his stories Kurs expected the court to believe. I have to agree with her. The dude couldn't lie for shit. The secret to lying is to come up with a convincing bullshit story and make it as detailed as possible in your head. Then memorize every last intricate detail so that you have an answer for any question on the fly. Now, share the absolute bare minimum. Don't use ten words when two will do. If you're ever questioned, Fill in some of the blanks from the concocted story you've committed to memory. Some, not all. As time passes, start leaving out the finer details, the name of the bottle of wine you were drinking, the song playing on the radio, but never, ever, ever add anything to the story. That's how you get caught out. The problem is, because you need to convince others of your lie, you sometimes end up convincing yourself. And the truth becomes a mystery even to you. That said, it's possible to be a crappy liar and still buy into your own bullshit, which is exactly what Prosecutor Malazzi suggested Kurs had done. What screwed him was his breaking of the cardinal rule. Never, ever, ever add anything to the story. He just kept on embellishing. Next in the witness box was Alex who testified that he had been called by James and told to come to the Stradamus farm. When he arrived, he was handed a bank card and a pin code written on a piece of cardboard. James told him to withdraw 3,000 rand in cash and go shopping, swiping for any purchases. The cash had to come to James, but the groceries were his to take home. When Malazzi cross-examined him, she demanded to know how he could have spent so much money without caring how much money was in the account, 
Was it because he knew the owner of the card was dead? Alex denied any knowledge of that, claiming that he believed the card belonged to James. He also said he had no idea how much he spent that day, but he had every intention of repaying the money. Next was Moses Rabuku's turn in the witness box, and he told how he had been forced to point out crime scenes, also claiming that police officers had been heavy-handed with him. He said that investigators had told him to cooperate with the officer who took him out to the crime scenes, or he would be beaten again. He testified that police had shown him a photograph of a car and asked if he recognised it, but he said that he did not. Which is odd, considering he would later testify that he saw the Finikaks arrive in their vehicle, being escorted by the Satoli brothers. He was then taken to a place where officers told him to point at what looked to him like burnt car tyres. Then they went to the Stratum's farm, and he said he had to point at a pile of blankets and at the shipping container on the property. The whole time, he said, a police officer was taking photographs of him pointing out various spots of interest. When asked if he felt like his life would be in danger if he was released on bail, Moses said that he didn't believe so. When Vincent Stratum took to the witness box later that day, he said he was concerned that his continued incarceration would cost him his six-year-old child. Vincent testified that he worked for his father at a salary of 6,000 rand per month, 500 rand of which he paid his ex in child support. With him not working, he was not earning, and ran the risk of losing access to his child. He said that he was detained for questioning on December the 29th at the home of one of Marushka's relatives, but then formally arrested the following day. He denied the charges against him, and told the court that he intended to plead not guilty. Court resumed on January the 30th, and the following day, the Citizen newspaper ran a story in which Rina Payne and Lorenz Erasmus, Joey's siblings, spoke of how difficult it had been to lose their sister so soon after their father had died. They said it was hard to sit in court day after day and listen to the terrible things their sister and sister-in-law had to endure in their final hours. Harder still was waiting for the DNA test results on the bones found along the R104. All they wanted was to know if the bones actually did belong to Joey and Anisha, or at least one of them, saying that, in court, anger kept them going, but when they got home, out of view of the public, they would fall apart. When investigating officer Colonel Isaac Klappe entered the witness box, he spoke of the gruesome fines that police had made at all of Chris Stratum's properties, saying that they had found five bodies across his three homes. In addition to the bones suspected of being those of Joey and Anisha, they found other bones that had been identified as human, but were unconnected to Joey and Anisha's case. They also found a body in a drain at Kurz's house in Costa, 50 kilometers from Rustenburg, and another hanging from a tree at his residence in Rustenburg itself. This is over and above, Klappe said, the 2014 murder of Amanda May, in which Kurz was also implicated. When Prosecutor Mulatzi asked if Chris Stradum should be granted bail, Klappe said that if he were to be released, the community would not be safe, adding that Chris had a tendency of threatening people with death if they tried to go against him. They had already placed people in witness protection because these witnesses feared for their lives should Chris be released back into the wild. He also said that Chris was definitely a flight risk. During the investigation at the farm, police found one million rand in cash on the property and believed he had another million stashed away that he could use to flee the country. 
Clubney also said that Mercer was an active participant in the atrocities that took place at the farm on December the 10th. She had been present during the rape of the two women. She had allegedly purchased lye, which was used on the bodies after the murder, and she had composed the sale agreement that Anisha had been forced at gunpoint to sign. With that, court then adjourned for the day. But the drama was far from over. Warrant Officer Yanni van der Volt served a warrant of arrest on Kurstradum and James Satorley for the murder of Amanda May. They would subsequently appear in the Mukwazi High Court on charges of murder and business robbery, concurrently with the trial for Joey and Anisha's murder. Back in the Brits Magistrates Court the following week, the state-appointed attorney representing the Satorley brothers was pulled off the case because his contract with Legal Aid SA expired. Rather than face yet another delay while a new lawyer got up to speed, Poncho Rakane, who was already representing the Stradoms, offered to represent the brothers pro bono, and the trial continued. Slape turned his attention to Vincent's fiance, saying that Marushka was present when the Finikak's bones were discarded in the felt, and that, in conjunction with her compliance when told to help clean up the murder scene, made her an accessory. Marushka also disposed of the murdered couple's watches and jewellery when she received a call the day after the murders and was told to do so. She took the call on the very same phone that Vincent used to send a friend a WhatsApp message reading, quote, We are in serious trouble. My father just murdered someone. End quote. On the topic of Vincent, he too was an accessory, Klape said, because he had driven the Vanikak's X-Trail out to Michalisburg and set it alight. He'd also driven the car that they used to dispose of the bones along the R-104. During his testimony, Klape revealed that they had eyewitnesses to what had happened at the Stradom's farm and who had been giving the orders. Klape said he did not feel that any of them should be granted bail because the farm on which they lived was still an active crime scene, so they had no homes to go to, and because they all worked for Kurs, they had no jobs. Klape said he believed the safety of the accused and that of potential witnesses were a concern should the accused be released from police custody. In cross-examination, Rakane questioned Klape about his two new clients, the Satoli brothers, and Klape told the court that the brothers had made statements regarding their involvement. The hearing was postponed to April the 12th for court questions and closing arguments. When court resumed, Forensic investigators informed the court that, at last, the DNA results were back, and while they were able to identify Joey Fanikark's remains, tests for Anisha's DNA were inconclusive. While both families were clearly distraught at the news, it hit Joey's family especially hard. They had just received irrefutable proof that their sister, niece and cousin was never coming home. All hope of finding them alive died in that moment. But the real shock was yet to come. On May the 16th, 2018, the Cormorant newspaper revealed that investigating officer Colonel Mokofela Nkosi had contacted Joey Finikak's aunt, Joey Bernard, with the news that the DNA results had been, quote, incorrectly read, end quote. According to Colonel Nkosi, the remains belonged to Anisha, not Joey. Ms. Bernard contacted Anisha's family only to discover that the police hadn't yet been in touch with them. It then fell to her to inform both the Fenikark family 
and Joey's siblings, Rina and Lawrence, that the police had screwed up. Rina would later tell the paper that while it had been a shock to hear that Joey was indeed dead, the family felt it afforded them the opportunity to get some closure and to move on, to process their loss and their grief. They had already begun making arrangements to collect the remains and hold a memorial service, she said. But the news of the error made it seem to the family as if everything was starting all over again. The police reacted by expressing their sincere apologies and condolences to the families, with police spokesperson Mpile Talane admitting, quote, there was a mistake in court, end quote. Around the same time, more drama was unfolding on the other side of the aisle, with Alex and Moses' lawyer withdrawing from the case. Yet again, Poncho Rakane stepped up and offered to represent all of the defendants. But, on May the 25th, the same morning that the case was to return to court for the Director of Public Prosecutions, or the DPP's, decision on whether to proceed with the case, Prosecutor Christine Mulazzi received a call from Rakane, the last remaining defence attorney, saying that he too was withdrawing. It was rumoured that Rakane quit due to the strader's inability to pay him. Later in court, Kurz said that they had appointed a new attorney to represent him, his wife and his son. Mulazzi also informed the court that the DPP had yet to come to a decision in the case, and so the case was postponed yet again. The fact that Marushka was no longer being represented by the Stratum's lawyer went mostly unnoticed, but it suggested that a rift had formed between her and the Stratum family, a rift that would turn out quite consequential as the trial played out. When the eight returned to court on July the 18th, Magistrate Tamage ruled that Vincent, Marushka and Mersha were to be granted bail of 20,000 rand each, but the remaining five would stay behind bars until their next appearance, when the DPB's decision would be presented in court. Outside the courthouse later that day, Vincent spoke to the press, where he revealed that Marushka had called off their engagement and ended their relationship. On August the 17th, when they again appeared in the Brits Magistrates' Court, Prosecutor Christine Molazzi informed the court that all charges had been dropped against Vincent Stradom, Moses Rabuku, and Murushka Opperman, and that they could be excused. Kurs repeatedly tried to make eye contact with his son, but Vincent actively ignored him, choosing instead to stare straight ahead. Sidebar. It was later revealed that the charges against Moses, Murushka, and Vincent were dropped not because they were innocent or the case against them was flimsy. They were dropped because they turned state's evidence. Now, I understand that deals will be made, but I can't help but wonder to what extent these three were actually culpable in the death of Joey and Anisha Finikark, and just how much they actually got away with. Just to be clear, the charges were dropped. It wasn't a plea deal. They walked away scot-free. End sidebar. Then Malazzi handed down the indictment against James Sotole, Kurs Tredom, Jack Sotole, Alex Medal, and Mercia Sredom. According to the indictment, which included a list of 33 state witnesses, only James and Jack were accused of rape, but all five were to stand trial on two counts of murder, robbery with aggravating circumstances, two counts of kidnapping, three of theft, and illegal possession of firearms and ammunition. 
The indictment also stated that only the remains of Anisha's body were identified, but the cause of her death could not be ascertained, and Joey's body was never found. It went on to say, quote, The state will prove that all the accused worked together in a premeditated crime. The murders were planned in advance and carried out in a robbery. The victims were raped repeatedly in execution of the plan. End quote. The case was postponed to later that month so that legal aid lawyers could be appointed for Alex, James and Jack, and all except Mercia, whose bail was extended, were remanded back into custody. Then, as one last fuck you to curse Stradom, the very last line of the News 24 article reporting on the indictment read, quote, In the meantime, Stradom's farm has been sold. End quote. The greedy prick who killed two women for the title deed of their farm ended up losing his own farm because of it, or before he even went to trial. One of the many things that amazed me about this case was that the drama never stopped. With Chris, James, Jack and Alex safely behind bars, and Mercia out on bail while they all awaited trial, and Vincent, Marushka, and Moses, among others, having turned state's evidence, you'd think that things would be relatively quiet. <laughs> but of course not. Chris, the doers, went and got himself caught on camera trying to arrange hits on state witnesses. Eight, to be precise. On September the 9th, 2018, the investigative journalism television show Carte Blanche aired video footage of Chris in the awaiting trial prisoner visiting area of the Kokosi Mampuru II prison in central Pretoria, discussing a hit on one of the state witnesses, with a man referred to as the Associate, who apparently had connections with the notorious assassin known as Big Man. In truth, the Associate was a carte blanche journalist. Chris can be heard making a deal with the Associate, where they agree on 25,000 rand per hit, for a total of 200,000 rand. Chris is then recorded as saying, quote, My wife will pay. Contact her. She's in Rustenburg. She will pay you in cash. End quote. Further into the segment, when the associate approaches Mercia, she said she would need to confirm the transaction with Chris, but then later denies it outright. Who exactly the eight people on Chris's hit list were never made it into the press. However, there were serious concerns for the safety of Moses, Marushka, and Kurs's own son Vincent, among others in both cases for which Kurs was standing trial. Those at higher risk were placed in witness protection. When Kurs and James appeared in the Northwest High Court in Mohwase on September 17th for the Amanda May trial, an additional charge of intimidation was added to Kurs's indictment after it was found that he made death threats against witnesses between June the 24th, 2014, and September the 8th, 2018. Later that same month, Kurs and company appeared in the Brits Magistrates Court one last time, where it was ruled that the trial of the Moinoi Five would be heard in the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria from March the 11th, 2019. And with that, no more drama. No, no, the drama just keeps on coming. At around 10 past 10 on the morning of Sunday, November the 4th, 2018, a pedestrian walking along Deer Park Road on the outskirts of Zanin 
about 350 kilometers northeast of Pretoria, noticed the concrete barrier at the business end of a T-junction had been disturbed and went to investigate. There, at the bottom of the short embankment, lay a man wearing a helmet and motorcycle gear. Nearby lay the mangled wreck of his motorbike. The pedestrian eased his way down to the biker and tried to establish if he was alive, but it quickly became apparent that he was not. Just then, the biker's phone rang. The pedestrian eased the phone from the biker's pocket and answered the call with the words, quote, A dead man is lying here, end quote. That is how the family of Willem Loebscher learnt of his death at the age of just 33 years. Willem and his family had been relocated to Zanin a few months before, when they had entered the witness protection program. Willem was due to testify as an eyewitness against Kurt Stradom and the rest of the Moinoi Five, although the exact nature of his testimony was uncertain. According to his mother, Rachel Marx, what he had witnessed had to be kept quiet to protect Willem and his family. One of Willem's friends claimed that they were in witness protection because Chris Stradom had tried to interfere with Willem as a witness. According to the friend, Willem had seen Chris set Joey and Anisha on fire after they were murdered, but Rachel denied this, simply saying, quote, that is not the truth, end quote, but refusing to be drawn any further on the matter, even after his death. At about 7.45 the previous evening, Willem had left a friend's house and was travelling back to the safe house he shared with his family. When he didn't arrive home, his wife tried to contact him on his mobile phone without success. She then called Rachel in the hopes that she had seen or heard from him. Rachel had not, and panic gripped the family as they tried desperately to establish the route Willem would have taken, in the hopes of pinpointing where he could be. The following morning, a friend of the Loebscher family was driving along Deer Park Road when he noticed a crowd gathered on the side of the road. The friend stopped his car and got out. As he was approaching the top of the embankment, the friend spotted the crashed motorcycle and immediately knew who the victim was. When he reached the body, the pedestrian asked if he knew the biker, and when the friend replied that he did, the pedestrian handed him Willem's phone. The friend called emergency services. Among his many injuries, Willem Loebscher had suffered a broken neck. Rumours of foul play began doing the rounds, suggesting that Willem had been killed because he was a witness in the Moinoi 5 trial. It was suggested that a minibus taxi had been seen running Willem off the road, but no evidence supporting these claims was ever found, and Rachel insisted that the family was satisfied that Willem's death was an unfortunate accident, nothing more. Curiously though, Willem's family was relocated before the story even broke on the Wednesday after his death. Call me a conspiracy nut, but if Willem's death was just a tragic accident, why was his family whisked away so quickly? And was there really no evidence to support the foul play angle? Or did police just not admit to finding any evidence if they even bothered to look, because they had dropped the ball on keeping a protected witness safe? Hey, it's a theory, but I guess we'll never know. But enough about conspiracies. Let's dive headfirst into the trial. Monday, March the 11th, 2019. 15 months to the day since the search for Joey and Anisha Finikark was launched. The trial of the Moinoi 5 
began in the historic Palace of Justice, where 55 years earlier, Nelson Mandela had been tried for treason and subsequently jailed for 27 years. Family and friends of Joey and Anisha packed the public gallery, eager for the trial to start, but it was not to be. The state prosecutor advised the court that the state was not yet ready for trial, saying that they needed more time to prepare and do further investigations. It was a devastating blow to the loved ones of the deceased, but, they figured, better a postponement than a half-baked attempt at a prosecution. The trial was postponed to August the 19th. But this wasn't the only murder trial going on, and Chris wasn't just sitting on his laurels in jail, waiting for his next court appearance. Oh, hell no! He was up to his old tricks, you know, conspiring to commit murder and shit. Yeah, clearly failing to learn his lesson the last time with the whole car blanche debacle. This time, Kurz tried to get a fellow inmate at Kokosi Mapuru prison, who was to be released on parole, to assassinate Yanni van der Velt, the investigating officer in the Amanda May case. Kurz promised the man a car and a large amount of cash, although the exact sum never made it into the papers, in exchange for his services. When Kurs returned to the Nkhwazi High Court in June 2019, an additional charge of conspiracy to commit a crime was added to his list of charges. Oi, seriously, the guy collected charges like other people collect stamps. Back in Pretoria, however, the trial of the Moinoi 5 at long last got underway in the North Gauteng High Court on August the 19th, 2019, with Judge Bert Bam presiding, Advocate Juliet Mkhwata representing the state, and advocate Heinrich Moldenhauer representing the Stradoms. James, Jack and Alex were represented by legal aid advocates, but their names never made it into the press. Each of the defendants pleaded not guilty to all charges. The first two witnesses to testify were Anisha's brother, Vainant, and Joey's brother-in-law, Kurbus. As in the bail hearing, they spoke of how they became increasingly suspicious of Kurbus Stradom and they recounted his story of looking for the woman and then having seen them the same morning of their disappearance, of his buying the farm for one million rand cash, and being asked to bring the woman's phones to them, which didn't explain how Anisha's phone was later found still in the house. As before, they said his story just didn't add up. Another red flag, Kubis said, was that Kurs had the woman's keys. That was very out of character, as they would never have left their keys with him. The farm labourer, who had gone with Mercia to buy the pool acid, also took to the witness box. He was still in witness protection, so his name was kept out of the papers, and he arrived at court, flanked by two armed guards. He recalled how Mercia had told him the pool acid was being used to help get rid of a foul odour in that particular area of the farm, and how Uam as he referred to him, told him to clean out the well behind the house, saying that James had dumped the body of a black woman down there. He also had to clean the stream running through the property, and Kurs had him search the property for blood and told him to keep a lookout for a missing green sandal. He also spoke of how Uam Kurs sent him into town the day before the murders to buy an axe and a saw. He said that he had seen Kurs sharpening the axe later that day, but he hadn't seen what had happened to it after that. He said while they were all cleaning, the police arrived on the farm, he was questioned, and he entered witness protection shortly thereafter. When investigating officer Lieutenant Colonel Johannes Nkosi took the stand, he said that, initially, police didn't consider Kurs a suspect in the disappearance of the woman, but thought Kurs might be of some use to them 
as he was the last person to see them alive. However, he later obtained a search warrant for Curse's business and his home. Police found nothing of interest in the workshop, but the house was a different story. Just then, Curse's advocate Heinrich Moldenhauer objected, claiming that the search warrant for the Stradom's home was not legal because not all of the fields had been filled in, despite it having been issued by a magistrate. The prosecution said that they would call the magistrate later that day to testify regarding the legality of the warrant, because were it found to be invalid, none of the evidence found in the Stradle home would be admissible in court. Although there was no press coverage of the magistrate's testimony, it can be assumed that the warrant was ruled valid, because evidence from the house was not excluded from the case. Next, Warrant Officer Christine Haig, the forensic investigator who had analysed the bones found at the farm and next to the R104, entered the witness box. She testified that more than 60 cranial or skull fragments, 50 rib fragments, sinus and other bones, as well as a molar tooth and seven roots were found at the scene, but they belonged to at least three different individuals. She said that while all the skeletal remains were fragmented and weathered, two sets of bones appeared noticeably different from the third. One set showed signs of having been exposed to the sun and weather for longer, and that the body had decomposed under different circumstances, suggesting that this victim had died earlier than the other two. The other two sets of bones appeared to have been subjected to heat altering and temperature fluctuations, indicating that the bones had been set alight. But there were also indications that the bones had been covered with flesh before they were subjected to the heat. Not all the bones could be placed, however, so Haig couldn't be sure whether the fragments belonged to even more than just three individuals. Next to enter the witness box was Nelson Milate. He testified that he'd been contacted by James with an offer of a job, but James didn't want to explain what it entailed over the phone, saying only that he needed to come to the workshop on the Finikax farm and bring along friends that he could trust. When he and his friends Moses and Elliot arrived at the farm, Chris explained that they were to kidnap two women with whom Chris had business dealings. The deal had gone bad, Chris said, and he was now unable to pay them. According to Nelson, Chris said it was a very easy job. Quote, like taking candy from a baby. It's woman. End quote. Chris told them that Mercer would provide uniforms and that they were to pose as ESCOM employees and knock on the door of the Finnecaq's home. Chris also told them that the kidnappings should happen during daylight hours and Nelson insisted that he also be provided with a gun, to which Chris agreed. The Finnecaq's house was then pointed out to them, and Nelson, Elliot and Moses agreed to carry out the kidnappings for 50,000 rand, but Nelson insisted on a deposit of 15,000 rand. Mercer supplied the uniforms, cable ties and handgun later that afternoon. James delivered the deposit to Nelson in cash the following day. However, when they arrived at the house to kidnap the woman, they saw much activity and Nelson and Elliot decided to abandon the plan and flee with the 15,000 rand that they already had. Nelson said that Kurs called them multiple times that evening, demanding to know when the job would be done and demanding that they return the firearm. However, Nelson was reluctant to return to Kurs's farm because he didn't trust Kurs not to kill him for knowing too much. Eventually, Mercer collected the gun from Moses. When asked what the plan was for after the kidnapping, Nelson said that they were told to load the woman into a car and call Kurs to arrange a place to meet. Heinrich Moldenhauer, the Stradom's advocate, then asked the judge if they could adjourn for the day as he was feeling unwell. Judge Bam agreed, but then one of the legal aid advocates requested that the judge order that Kurs be kept apart from the other accused because he'd been threatening them. 
As it turns out, Chris hadn't been the only defendant trying to intimidate their co-accused, but we'll get to that. Judge Bam adjourned the court until September the 2nd. When court resumed, Prosecutor Mkhwata called on Moses Rebuku, and James's lawyer jumped up with an objection, but Judge Bam overruled it, and Moses entered the witness box. Moses' account of what transpired at the Stradon's farm on December the 10th, 2017, was gruesome, to say the least. He detailed how tears streamed down Joey and Anisha's faces as they were gang-raped before each of them was shot and then hanged by their necks from hooks attached to the ceiling of the shipping container. However, rather than just let them die and be done with it, he said, James eased up the ropes around the Finnecaque's necks just enough so that their feet were barely touching the ground, so that they suffocated to death slowly. According to Moses, Kuss was the mastermind behind the murders, and Moses was paid 2,000 rand for his role in the crime, which involved helping abduct the victims. After the initial failed attempt, Moses was collected from his home in Majakaneng and brought to the Stradom's farm, where he witnessed what was done to the woman. He found it extremely difficult to watch, but said he felt powerless to stop it because he feared for his own life. Next, Vincent Stradom was called, and more drama ensued as father and son turned on each other. Chris claimed that he was innocent and was only involved because of, quote, troubles and problems, end quote, caused by Vincent. Vincent, on the other hand, testified that he had been told of his father's plan ahead of time. He said that the night before the murders, Chris had called him into his bedroom and told him that he planned to kidnap and kill the Vinikaks after forcing them to sign over ownership of their farm. Vincent claimed that he and Marushka were shocked and horrified and that they tried to talk Kurs out of it. But the following day, when Vincent arrived home from work, Kurs showed him Joey and Anisha's bodies. Kurs then proceeded to burn the bodies and at about midnight on December the 11th, Kurs told Vincent and Moses to get rid of the couple's ex-trail. The two men drove to a quiet road near Machalisburg and set the car alight. He also revealed that, while he was incarcerated with his father during the bail application, Kurs had offered him money to keep quiet. Kurs and Mersha, however, denied everything, saying that Vincent was just trying to get back at them because he never approved of their marriage. When Vincent stepped down from the witness box, he couldn't even bring himself to look at the man who was only his father by birth. And the drama keeps on coming. On Friday, September the 20th, Unconfirmed reports began doing the rounds that Kurs had been admitted to Califong Hospital, west of Pretoria, after he was found unconscious in his cell. It was later confirmed that he had indeed been rushed to the hospital, and it was rumoured that he had tried to take his own life with sleeping pills or poison. But the prison refused to confirm or deny the, quote, allegations of poisoning, end quote, save to say that this was being investigated. A friend of Kurs... I find it hard to believe that he has friends, but a friend, of course, took to social media and asked that people not make nasty comments as Chris's children were suffering, saying, quote, They are innocent children that will remember their father as the good father he was before he made mistakes. End quote. On Monday the 23rd, News 24 reported that Chris had died on Friday. Mersha had been called to the hospital because he was brain dead and they wanted authorization to switch off the life support machines. According to the article, she was hysterical and inconsolable. The article also confirmed that it appeared that his death was actually a suicide, 
and a note had been found in his cell. The trial proceeded with the remaining four co-accused, but there was very little in the line of press coverage on the trial after that. Also, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, progress in the trial slowed down considerably. The next mention of the court proceedings in the press came almost a year later, when it was reported that Marushka had been called to testify. However, before that, a single article appeared in the Rustenburg Herald on July the 24th, 2020, in which it was reported that James Satole had been found guilty in the Mkhwaze High Court and sentenced to life imprisonment for his part in the 2014 murder of Amanda May. Kuss, however, through his suicide, managed to elude justice for the crime. Back in the Pretoria High Court on August the 18th, Marushka was called as the state's final witness, and she told the court that the last time she saw Anisha alive, she was in the Stratum's house, being raped by James. She also stated that two weeks before the murders, Kurs had said that he wanted to buy the Finikak's farm, but didn't have the two million rand asking price. According to her, Kurs subsequently said that the only solution was to kill the woman after they had signed, quote, a consent form, end quote, to sell their farm. A few days later, Mersha sent Marushka to buy cable ties and adhesive tape, and when she had last seen Anisha, she was bound with the very same cable ties and gagged with the very same adhesive tape that Marushka had bought. Marushka told the court that, while she hadn't witnessed the actual murders, she had been present when the bones had been dumped at the stream. She said that she had also been told to assist with the clean-up at the stream once the bones were moved to the R104 in Buffelsontain, and that she had been present when Vincent had set the X-trail alight. Marushka further testified that Mersha had been the one to draw up the burgers' contract that aimed to transfer ownership of the Finikak's property to Kurs. Then, in a surprise revelation, she told how, at one point, Kurs seemed to get cold feet and wanted to call off the assault of the woman, but Mersha had taken him aside and said that he needed to, quote, finish what he started, end quote. She also revealed that after their arrests, Mersha had threatened her with death unless she made a full confession and took full responsibility for what had happened at the farm that day. To me, this calls into question just who the mastermind was. Was it Kurs? Or was it actually Mersha? And with that, the state rested its case. When the defense team called Mersha, she tearfully denied that she had anything to do with the murders, claiming that she was visiting her mother in Rustenburg on the day that the Finkaks were killed. She also emphatically rejected Marushka's earlier testimony that she had had to help Mersha clean the scene where the bodies had been disposed of. Next up, James, and in his testimony, he also claimed that he was nowhere near the Stradorms farm on the day of the murders, saying that he'd been elsewhere and at the time had been paralytic drunk, quote, end quote. This was in stark contradiction of the testimonies of both Marushka and Moses, where they claimed to have personally witnessed him raping Anisha. The defense then also closed its case, and the trial was postponed to August the 26th for closing arguments. I couldn't find any reports on the closing arguments of the defense team, but I did learn that when court resumed, state advocate Mkhwata asked that the court reflect on the feelings of the families, saying that burning their bodies not only defeated the ends of justice, but also denied their families the closure 
of paying their last respects. She also argued that the crime had been motivated by greed and that the killings had been premeditated. When Judge Bam delivered his verdict, he said that there was no doubt in his mind that the four accused planned the murders and had had a common purpose to execute it. In his judgment, he rejected Mercer's claims that she had nothing to do with the crime, as she wasn't even on the property, calling the evidence that she had helped plan the murders and clean the crime scene overwhelming. He also said that had Kurs not committed suicide, there was no question that he too would have been convicted alongside his co-accused, as all fingers pointed at all of them being the killers. Judge Bam then postponed the trial until October the 15th for sentencing and ordered that Mercer's bail be revoked. She and her fellow convicted murderers were then transported back to Kakhosi Mampuru prison. Outside the courthouse, Rina spoke to the media, saying that it had been unbearable listening to what Kurs and his accomplices had put her sister and sister-in-law through. But she was happy that their killers would have to pay for their crimes. The family called for each of the convicted to be sentenced to life imprisonment. In a statement, the National Prosecuting Authority called the verdict significant because the victims were women who were killed in a gruesome manner and it was apt that the verdict of the trial, which started during the previous year's Women's Month, was delivered during Women's Month 2020. When court reconvened, Mercia pleaded with Judge Bam for mercy and to keep her out of jail. However, Judge Bam called the four killers, quote, a gang of evil-minded criminals, end quote, saying that the killing was one of the cruelest crimes he had ever had to deal with while on the bench, and described the actions as, quote, inhumane, cruel, evil, and simply despicable, end quote. He said that he marveled at how the crime was motivated entirely by greed, and it boggled the mind how they thought they could get away with it, because people didn't just simply vanish. He rejected their calls for mercy from the court, because, he said, they showed no mercy to their victims when they kidnapped the woman, or when, naked and scared, their victims begged for their lives before being raped, tortured, and killed, and then, in death, had their remains desecrated. He also made particular mention of the cruelty they showed by killing Joey first, while forcing Anisha to watch her die as she was strung up on a meat hook. He then sentenced Mercia to two life sentences and an additional 69 years in prison, and Alex to two life sentences and an additional 54 years. The Satoli brothers each received four life sentences and an additional 54 years. All sentences would be served concurrently, as per South African law. I like to wrap up my cases with a where are they now type of segment. But I'm not ashamed to admit that I didn't even bother with trying to find out because I honestly don't give a fuck. The mastermind, or at least the mastermind's puppet, if that theory I mentioned earlier holds water, denied the Erasmus and Finikak families justice by taking his own life. And the rest of them will be out far too bloody soon because our criminal justice system with murder convicts getting out in a mere handful of years, is a fucking joke. Instead, I want to end with something that is definitely no joke. 
It's sad how, in a country where women are attacked because of their sexual orientation, far too often, the story of two lesbians who were attacked, raped, tortured and killed for plain old greed seem to lose the public's interest pretty fucking fast. Not long after Joey and Anisha were killed, a South African insurance company, First for Women, released an ad promoting the 16 Days of Light campaign that covered Joey and Anisha's story in all of 63 seconds. Remember the women we lost here. The hopes and dreams cut short here. Their names were Joey and Anisha. Dispossessed of land and life. Dearly beloved, wife and wife. Raped, tortured and hung. Till death, them did part. Remembering is not enough. It's time to shine a light on women abuse. Get help or pledge your support now at 4-women.co.za. I've shared the full video to our Facebook group, if you want to check it out. While the 16 Days of Light campaign was a good idea to draw attention to the dangers that the women of South Africa face every day, there is rarely a week that passes without news of yet another woman viciously attacked making headlines. There is also rarely a week that passes where the women who made headlines last week are forgotten this week because other attacked women are making headlines. It's sad, it's sick, and it needs a fucking stop. Fathers, teach your sons better. Just because we are striving for gender equality doesn't mean that chivalry and respect for women no longer have their place in this world. Without a woman, your sons wouldn't be here. And that's a pretty good lesson to teach your boy early on in life. While we're at it, perhaps it's time to get over your issues that not all women want or need you in their lives. A woman turning down your advances because you aren't her type says nothing about you. You taking her rejection personally and forcing yourself onto her because all she needs is a dick to show her what she's missing says everything about you. Maybe that's lesson number two. Don't be a dick. It's time men took responsibility for toxic masculinity and put an end to it. You can be masculine without being toxic. The way to do that is to teach your children better. Start conversations. Call out bullshit when you see it. Shame toxic masculinity out of existence. Oh, and don't leave your daughters out of the conversation. We need to stop teaching our daughters that they are the fairer sex. Violence is an option when the situation calls for it. Speaking as a man, I can assure you that one of my kind will find it near on impossible to get it up when his balls have been kicked into his throat because he fucking deserved it. But seriously, all jokes aside, Conversations need starting, which is why we partnered with Made Well Love. They're starting conversations and raising funds for essential causes, and you can help from as little as 100 rand. Check out the show notes for their details. Thank you for coming along for the ride as we explore the brutal torture, rape and murder of Joey and Anisha Finikark. 
This will be my last episode for a while as I'm taking a small step back from true crime for a few months. As much as I enjoy it, I didn't actually realise just how much of a toll researching these cases and writing these scripts has been taking on my mental health. I think my biggest mistake was doing Raymond Baez's Making a Man, Larry King's Bloody Valentine, and this one, Joey and Anisha's Murder in Moinoy, back to back. They were three seriously intense cases, and when you throw slaughter on the seaboard into the mix, I need to diversify my focus for a while. But don't worry, I'm not pulling the plug on ACMQ. I'm just taking a bit of a breather, but I'll be back in November. The 4th of November to be exact, if you want to diarise it. And the ACMQ team, including me, will still be active on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. The merch store will still be open, and you can still support the show on Patreon and buy me a coffee which would help a lot. That's actually the other reason I'm putting ACMQ on hold. I absolutely hate asking for assistance, specifically financial assistance. And I need to focus on income-generating projects for a while. Podcasts are fun and free to download, but producing them, not so much. Okay, it's still fun, but it's a lot of work. And there are the costs of hosting the website and the podcast itself, my data usage, paying my team, and also the time I put in that I don't get paid for creating the scripts. I spend about 20 to 30 hours on researching my cases, and then another 10 to 15 hours, sometimes more, on writing and tweaking my scripts, which average around 25,000 words. And then I get Janine and Richard to review them, sometimes more than once, before I even think about sealing myself up in the sound booth. It's not a five-second process, and this is why you haven't been getting a case every week. I tried to do weekly episodes, but trying to squeeze everything into my day and still get in the 7 hours sleep I need while also earning an income, it didn't quite work out as planned. It all adds up, and I'm pretty much funding this alone. Although I am immensely grateful to my two patrons, Stephanus LaRue and Anna Seitz. Here's a special shout out to say thank you specifically to you two for your continued support. I don't have the words to fully express my gratitude. So yeah, we may be going on a four-month hiatus, but if you can help out in supporting the show with a small monthly donation, it would be greatly appreciated. One dollar is less than the price of a loaf of bread, but with just 95 one dollar subscriptions, ACMQ breaks even. At $150, ACMQ becomes entirely self-sustaining. At $300, we get to hire a second writer, And then you absolutely will be getting more episodes more often. Did you know that in the month of May, we had 1,420 downloads? Imagine what that could do for the show. But I'm okay with 95. Every little bit helps. And if you want to get something back for your contribution, why not head over to the merch store and see what we have on offer? Anyway. Let me end off by saying thank you so much for the love and support you have shown me over the past seven months. I've loved the love and I look forward to bringing you a whole bunch of new cases when we return for season two of A Crime Most Queer. You've been listening to A Crime Most Queer, an LGBTQ true crime podcast based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Presented by VA Amazing and written and produced by NJ Hawkeby and Janine McLean. With editorial oversight by Richard Thompson, 
original music by Joseph McDade, and additional voice talent by Janine McLean and others. See our show notes for more info. Cry Most Queer is available on most podcasting platforms, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. Remember to subscribe on your podcast app of choice to be notified when we release new episodes. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a rating and leave us a review. We really do appreciate hearing from you. If you would like to support the show, you can become a patron from just $1 per month by going to patreon.com forward slash ACMQ podcast or make a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash ACMQ pod. We post all episodes along with additional content to our website www.acmq.co.za You can find us on social media by searching for A Crime Most Queer on Facebook and Twitter. We also welcome your thoughts either on social media or you can email us at comment at acmq.co.za While this story is based on actual events, some situations, conversations, and characterizations may have been fictionalized or invented for purposes of dramatization, based on court documents and press reports from the time. With respect to such fictionalizations, any familiarity to actual character or history of any person, living or dead, is purely for dramatic purposes. Some names may have been changed to protect the identity of those involved. Mm-hmm.